0: Follow along if you want to, jot down some notes and uh, maybe even text yourself some reminders of things that the Holy Spirit uh, brings upon your life uh, as, we, as we go through today. Let's pray as we start. God, I pray that you would give us supernatural wisdom into your word. God, you promise that if we call to you, that you will show us unsearchable things. And God, I pray that you would open our eyes. Lord, we lack wisdom. We see it all around us in, in the relationships where we work, in our homes. God, we, we know that we don't do it right. And so we pray for your insight on what it is to be a friend like you are a friend to us and what it is to be a friend to one another, but also what it is to be a friend to you. So God, I pray as we look into your word, give us that kind of, give us that supernatural wisdom that we would not only know what we're hearing, but we'd also know how to apply it. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Last week, we, we looked at A common bond that David and Jonathan had. The Old Testament book of 1 Samuel that David and Jonathan had this unique bond that made them kindred spirits. This common bond that was this single-minded devotion to God and to his kingdom. And we found that if we're to be true Christian friends... Friends who are more than just Christians in name, but we're actually Christian friends to one another, that our focus must be like that of David and Jonathan. Uh, and, we, and we see Jesus talk about this in Matthew 6, not about David and Jonathan specifically, but he says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This particular passage, he was explaining how we worry and we fret over so many different things. He was talking about material possessions and what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear. But I would also put in, we worry about what people think about us. We worry about our jobs. We worry about our careers. We worry about all these different things. But if we're to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. Early on in this series, I, I talked about um, a book called The Seven Checkpoints by uh, Stuart Hall and Andy Stanley, where they talk about the the seven checkpoints that they, they felt like every kid that was graduating from a youth ministry ought to know going into their next phase of life. And one of those phases was, or one of those checkpoints was authentic friendships. And they brought up the fact that we... Don't always choose our friends. As a matter of fact, uh, and, and I see this to be the case not only with children but with adults, is our friends tend to choose us more than we choose our friends because we are drawn to people who accept us for who we are. And because they accept us for who we are, we tend to want to acquiesce to what they want us to be. We realize that we enjoy this this circle of friendship. We enjoy the, the, uh, the commonality that we might share with people. But because we get into that relationship and that relationship becomes valuable, we may be more inclined to compromise on certain principles of our faith, certain principles, guiding principles of our life for the sake of these friendships. And that's why it is so very important that if we're not to be people who are chosen by, by our friends, but rather we seek and we find people who are going to build us up, and those are the people that we invest the most of our relational capital in, we have to be about what Jesus is saying here. We must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to us. Because without this singular focus in our lives, our Christian friendships really aren't Christian. They may have this moral camaraderie. You know, we don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't chew, we don't girl, go with girls and boys who do. You know, we we are morally pure, so to speak, but we're not focused upon Christ's love and his kingdom. He's saying that we should seek first his kingdom and then we can seek kindred spirits that hold that same priority. And those people then are our besties, our confidants, the people that we are most close to, that we're going to bear our soul to because they have the same heart and mind. They're going to be ones who hold us accountable and they're going to hold, we, we can hold them accountable. Whenever we begin to stray, we don't worry about the relationship as much as we worry that that person could stray from their relationship with God. That is more important to us because we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness One of my favorite quotes, and and I've repeated it throughout this study, is from C.S. Lewis. Is there any pleasure on earth as great as a circle of Christian friends by a good fire? And I say that because it's not just people who are yes people who agree with us. Uh, You know, if somebody disagrees with us on, on Facebook or Post Some particular thing that is contrary to our political ideology or our, our, our taste in music or something like that. Our temptation might be to unfriend them. It's like, I don't want to see that garbage. Get it off of my feed. I don't want to be polluted by that attitude. But if we are in an authentic Christian relationship and we're in a circle of friends, not only do we encourage one another, but we sharpen one another. Whenever things come up that aren't quite in tune, that aren't in plumb, as, the, uh, um, as the, the prophet would say, we're willing to say the hard things to help our friends to get back into plumb. We're willing to receive the hard words for the purpose of being closer to Christ. There's that commonality that transcends everything. Well, we we started out this study of friendship by looking what Christ said directly about it from the boss's mouth, so to speak. John 15 verses 12 through 15, the English Standard Version says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Well, Jesus gives us a commandment, not a suggestion, not a recommendation, not a, well, you know, put this on kind of your to read list on your iPad or something like that. It's a commandment. It's a non-negotiable. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Well, and these guys had been loved by Jesus. Jesus is not dead yet. He has not uh, been crucified and rose again yet at this point in John chapter 15. As a matter of fact, he was pretty much in the, the heat of his ministry. I, I challenged someone today to, um, as, as they took, took um, inventory of their life, really, where, what was it that they were supposed to do with their life? And being a, a follower of Christ, I, I said, you know, this is what God calls you to. Above and beyond all other things. You can talk all day about what is it that I'm supposed to do next. But what you ought to be doing is talking to the one who created you. God, where is it that you are leading me? More than that, what is it that you want of me? And that is what this passage of scripture comes out of. It comes out of a... a, (sighs) a treatise that, that Jesus gives about him being the vine and us being the branches. I challenged LifePoint several times to memorize that particular passage. John chapter 15, verses one through 17, that I am the vine, you are the branches. And, and because so much about God and so much about being who he's created us to be, lies in dwelling in Christ. And true authentic friendships come from dwelling with Christ. If we are not dwelling with Christ, we may say things every once in a while that are encouraging and uplifting to one another. But to what end are we leading our Christian friends? Are we leading them to fall deeper into love with Christ? Are we simply looking for them not to feel bad? That is a very convicting thing for me as a pastor, because for years I battled with Man, I just don't want people to be upset with me. You ever feel that way? I hate having people just not like me. I don't like mean emails. I don't like nasty phone calls from deacons. I don't want my neighbor down the street to look at me like I might be some kind of right wing nut simply because I'm a pastor. I don't want people to look at me weird. But what he is calling us to do is to fall deeper in love with him. And as we fall deeper in love with him and we're challenging one another in that same way. Our relationship becomes stronger. Now, some some friendships may end because of that. And I've seen that happen as well, where God has called me to sharpen someone to to challenge them to become a deeper follower of Christ and the moment that I do the relationship changes and it's as if I put a requirement or a condition on that friendship that they no longer just are comfortable at all with And the more I press into them growing in faith and sacrificing more and more of their life and themselves for the gospel of Christ. The less and less of a voice I have in their life. Because they're not falling deeper and deeper in love with Christ. And they're starting to realize what Jamie is calling me to is sacrifice of myself. And I'm not really sure I want that. Well, the people that I'm closest to, the people that I bear my soul to, the people that understand me the most, I want to be on that same path. If at all possible, I want them to be a little bit farther along than I am. So that they can challenge me and they can shepherd me in following Christ. They can tell me when I'm a little off. But how do we do that? How do we love one another with that kind of love? Well, I want to give you guys some, some, some hints. I call cultivating kindred spirits. And, and I want to draw from a, a passage of scripture that we traditionally read at weddings and only at weddings, it seems. First Corinthians chapter 13. Whenever we think of love, we think of marriage. You know, we think that is what it is all about. That is the pinnacle of love. Well, scripture uses a number of different words for love. There's a word for brotherly love, a word for sensual love, a word for um, affectionate love. It's a, a, a word for unconditional love. And the word that is used when you hear the word love in this particular passage written by the Apostle Paul, who was a guy who was who thought he was in love with God. But whenever Jesus really got a hold of his soul, he had to do an about face and go a totally different direction. And so he gave up everything, literally everything to follow Christ. Christ. And so he gives us a a little treatise of what it is to actually love. How do we show this kind of love in a friendship, in a Christian friendship? And the word he uses is agape. And agape is a love that is a giving love, an unconditional love. A love that loves regardless of the circumstances. I don't just love you simply because you give me this. It's not a transactional love. It's an unconditional love. Those of us who have been parents have, I believe, a greater understanding of that because there's something about whenever your kid is born that they've got your heart. They've got it there from the beginning and they don't let go of it. And you want that. There is a, a deep love in that. And even whenever... They do things that disappoint you. That love does not go away because that love is unconditional. Now, you may, that doesn't mean that there's not consequences for for those particular actions, but that love still abides. That's what he's talking about. Well, he says in first Corinthians chapter 13, verses one through 13, it says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge and I have all the faith so as to move mountains or remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. So let's stop right here and let's let's look at the picture that he's painting. He's talking about how he is relating to the world around him. And he can speak truth. He can have all kinds of wisdom. He can be one of the best speakers in the world. But if he does it without love, you might as well just be clanging a cymbal. I teach uh, elementary school music for a living and we uh, have recently discovered um, cymbals and there's a little thing that that we just did for our our first grade portion of our concert where we went, Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pedal of water. Jack went down and then you have them go down on the barred instruments on the xylophones and broke his crown. Crash! And of course... Whenever they do it, the parents just absolutely love it. I guarantee you, I send home one of those, those sets of symbols with those parents. And suddenly that love that they have of their kid playing those symbols, it's just not the same. It, it, it was fine whenever they're with Mr. Duke in a controlled environment. And Mr. Duke can take away the symbols. If we have a voice and we use it without love... We become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, an irritant could actually hurt your ears. And if you have prophetic powers, in other words, if you can explain things, if you can say, look, because of this, this and this, this is going to happen. And so you might want to change this and this so it doesn't. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and I have all the faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I'm so completely generous that I just start giving away everything that I have, but I am still a jerk, I am nothing. I gain nothing. Because he says in verse four, love is patient and kind. Love, it doesn't envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, and there's been many, many of them, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will will see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. I mean these are some powerful things he's saying here and we could spend weeks going through and unpacking them but he's talking about all the important things and as as a person who's grown up in the church you know you're always wowed by knowledge and wisdom that people have. And it, whenever you pass around the hat and say, what do you want the, the pastor to preach about? Or what do you want this Bible study to be about? There's always a handful of things, especially in youth groups. And I won't tell you about some of the things in youth groups they always want you to teach about. But one of them that always comes up is revelations. Revelation because somehow we just get wrapped up in the whole mystery and the mystique about it. And I've really irritated some church people because I can count on maybe one or two fingers the times that I've taught on Revelation. And one of the reasons that is is because there are so many points of disagreement that if you present a different point of view from someone else, that becomes a divider between you and them. But the truth is, it was written in such a way, so figuratively, that we really don't know. And I think that God intended for us just not to know certain things. He's like, let me tease you a little bit, but not too much. But what comes in in this is we become impatient. We become unkind. We become boastful. We become envious we become arrogant and rude and we start to see love fade away because suddenly it's not a friendship it's as long as you believe and think the same way that I do we're good even on the things that I Personally, I don't even understand fully myself. But because you said this, this one particular time, I am through. That is not love. Some key features of this agape love. And I'm just going to unpack a, a, a few of them that I see in verses four through six of First Corinthians 13 here. It's interesting to that. What Paul emphasizes, the first thing he emphasizes is that it is patient and it is kind. Patient and kind—two things that we're not good at in the 21st century. We want it. We want it now. And if we don't get it now, then who do I who do I talk to? You know, who do who who's who's the person in charge? Well, I'm not getting the answers. Who's who's higher than you? Because we're impatient. And if things aren't really turning out the way that we want them to be, we become unkind. And we begin begin acting as though we do not have the Holy Spirit living within us. Love does not envy and it doesn't boast. Whenever your friend gets that promotion or something like that, and and I'll tell you what, in a church planner's world, this is a really hard thing because some church plants, boom, through the roof. You've got people coming because, you know, that's a sign that Jesus is moving. Whenever you've got, you know, a ton of people coming to your church and your parking lot's full and you can actually begin um, buying a new sound system or whatever, because, you know, that means that Jesus is among you. But as you look at other people quote unquote, have success, you look and go, what's what's wrong with us? What did I do something wrong? Did I make a wrong turn? Or we start making excuses. Well, yeah, if I if I gave away an iPad at Easter, gosh, you know, maybe we'd have people show up, too, you know, but it it becomes this envious thing. It becomes something that can become boastful. We lord things over friends saying, well, if you be more like me, then you might get this. You might be. You might be able to have what I have. But he also says that love is not arrogant or rude. And, and I bring this up because I feel like it directly relates to this whole around the campfire thing. We, If we can be around a fire and we begin talking about the things that really matter in life and things start to come out and we begin to realize that someone's life may not be where God is leading their life to be. It's how you talk to them about it. Because I've seen friendships and I've seen Christian witnesses destroyed because people we're not approached in love around that campfire because people are arrogant and rude. Another place, uh, um, this is Jamie's memory, it's terrible, but where, where he says that our speech should be seasoned with salt, that we should speak the truth, but we need to do it In love, we need to show grace. Um, David Englehart once said uh, that accountability without love is like an IRS audit. You know, you nobody you you don't like sit there and go. I cannot wait and go hang out with the auditor from the IRS because you know what? They're going to help me. They're going to help me get it right. I'm not square with the government. Thank God for the IRS. Well, some of us feel that way in terms of accountable relationships. Well, how's this going? Well, what's your problem? Get it together. And then we go and we email everybody on our list, say, you can't believe so and so just ain't getting it together. Pray for them. You know, and we, we become arrogant, we become rude, we become self-serving. It doesn't insist in its own way. is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And love bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things, endures all things. In other words, a Agape love is a long haul kind of a love. That there's going to be ups, there's going to be downs. It is sacrificial. It is unselfish. Even when I think that I'm right. Or even when I know that I'm right. Because there's times, right, whenever we know that our way is the best way. And, it's, and there's been times whenever I've just kind of had to take my hands back, especially as a pastor and say, okay. And later on they'll come and they'll say, pastor, this has happened. I remember you telling me this and that and so much inside of me. I want to go. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that conversation. know, <laughs> And, I told you so. That's what I want to say. But I try like crazy not to because nobody wants to be told that. Nobody wants to have it shoved in their face. But we want to encourage one another. Even when I think that I'm right or I know that I'm right. Kind even when I know that I am right. It does not rejoice in being right, but it rejoices in what is right. I'm going to say that again because I want to clarify it. It does not rejoice in being right, but it rejoices in what is right. I cling to what I know is right in Christ, but I don't want to rejoice in the fact that someone figured out that I was at their own expense. That's not my job. My job is that the truth when the truth is revealed, praise God that they figured out what is right. Because that is what I rejoice in, not in their misfortune. See, we don't ignore sin. But we also don't go around going, you got to get right, got to get right, got to get right, got to get right, got to get right. See, I told you you should have gotten right. We speak the truth, but we must do it with agape. We must do it with agape. Well, as we kind of close this out and we think about how does this relate to friendship? I guess the the big question that we have to ask ourselves is what needs to change in us? What about this kind of love has opened your eyes to something that you're realizing that I'm wrong? I need to get it right. I need to talk to someone about how to get it right. I'm being incredibly judgmental or I'm, I'm being arrogant. I'm being rude. I'm being unkind. What needs to change? And then the second question is, where where do you need to show love? Where do you need to show his grace, his forgiveness? Psalm 139, 23 through 24, one of my favorite passages says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. In this particular context, I suppose it would be, are there things that I thought I was doing right in the name of friendship that I I really need to repent of? And I need your wisdom to lead me on the better path of showing unconditional love, of being able to say hard things, but say them in such a way that builds a person up instead of tears them down, a way that encourages someone to go and to fight and to live the good fight. What are those things? I invite you in the time that we have in silence here to think about it, pray about it, ask God to show you, God, what do you want me to change? Let's pray together. God, as we spend a little quiet time, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us insight to where we're not quite right. Help us to love the way that you love. Jesus, I thank you that you've given me the ability to live at peace with God through your sacrifice. That you, in your love, did not consider your equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but rather you you made yourself into a servant, showing the ultimate sacrificial love.